Hello, it's the ghost. Welcome to A Stranger World Than Fiction, where we are taking a look at what's all going on out there. The oddities, the strange that others are claiming to be true. We talk a lot about UFOs and sightings here on Stranger World, but how about this? Eight pilots that come forward with interesting information on what they saw. We talk about the strange and unusual here on Stranger World. UFOs, or UAPs, are a strange thing, and they are highly unusual. But are they believable? Maybe, maybe not. But some of the stories that we hear of different encounters and sightings, I mean, they can be questioned. Listen to these eight reports, and you tell me if you think they are legitimate. This one's brought to us by a Miriam Assurance from May 31st, 2018. It says eight U.S. pilots reveal their secret UFO encounters. For many decades, the content of the document remained secret, and the former pilots have retired and do not keep official secrets anymore. New facts of their contacts with UFOs during their stay in the ranks of military or civil aviation open up. Here is the Eight pilots reveal their secret UFO encounters. Okay, let's see what they had to say. The first meeting. In the evening of June 29, 1954, James Howard, the commander of the airliner of the British airline BOAC, was heading to London from New York. Approximately 30 minutes after the takeoff, Howard received a signal from the New York Air Traffic Control Center to direct the aircraft to the coast of Rhode Island and stay in the area until further instructions. After ID 12 minutes, Howard informed the center that he only had fuel on the specified route and asked for permission to continue the flight. He was allowed on condition that he would make a hook and fly over the Cape Cod Bay in the north of the state. Three hours later, when the plane was at an altitude of 7,000 meters above the St. Lawrence River, which is in the Canadian province of Quebec. Several UFOs appeared in the sky. They remained within a line of sight for about 20 minutes. Later, Howard described them in his report. They flew at about the same speed as we, about 400 kilometers an hour, in a parallel course, being about three miles northwest of us. All the crew members of the aircraft and the navigator determined the parameters of their movement. Howard immediately reported to the control center about his observations. They confirmed the receipt of the message and suggested that in future they should report on all abnormal events and situations during the flight. However, after another two hours, Howard unexpectedly received an order to make an unplanned landing in the Canadian town of Goose Bay, on the western tip of the Labrador Peninsula. Immediately after the landing of the plane, Howard and all of his crew were interviewed by the staff of the U.S. Air Force Intelligence Department. It seemed that they were not surprised by what they heard. Later, he learned that at a time when his plane was circling over Rhode Island, the Air Force reconnaissance had already been following a group of UFOs flying northeast and discovered earlier over the state of Massachusetts. A visiting doctor and his wife, who were there on vacation, reported about them at one of the police stations. The second meeting. On June 4, 1955, the crew of the 
RB-47 Boeing, a medium-range reconnaissance aircraft flying over the Viscount Melville Channel off the northern coast of Canada, installed radar and then visual contact with the UFO. It was a silvery-gray-colored device at about 5,000 meters far from the plane, and the pilots were watching it for nine minutes. Subsequently, the journalists noticed that during the entire period of observation, the UFO was also photographed using a high-speed movie camera. But the Air Force's security personnel said that the quality of the footage was very low and therefore it was impossible to extract useful information from it. On June 7th, the Air Force Command sent the second reconnaissance aircraft to the same area, only equipped with the latest radio, photo, and cinematographic equipment, as well as the most modern radar. On the same day, this aircraft from Eielson Air Base in Alaska entered the radar contact of a UFO three times over Banks Island near the northeastern coast of Canada. But the Air Force did not report any details about this episode. On to meeting number three. On April 8, 1956, the commander of a civil airliner, Raymond Rayan, and co-pilot William Nall suddenly saw a flying UFO in front of them with dazzling bright white lights. Rayan directed the plane abruptly upward while the UFO suddenly lit up in orange, made a turn 90 degrees to the right and rushed past them at their very nose at a speed of at least 1,500 kilometers per hour. Fearing new tricks from the UFO, the commander reported the incident to the nearby U.S. Air Force Base Griffiths. In response, Rand was told that they found an orange glow of unknown origin at an altitude of 2,500 meters and already sent two interceptors there, and he was offered to turn the landing lights off, change course, and follow the area of the current location of the UFO. Rand obeyed the order, but his liner failed to approach the UFO, which was much superior in speed and maneuverability, even to interceptors. What a surprise, right? and soon disappeared from sight near Lake Ontario. Rayan returned the liner to the previous course and soon safely landed at the airport of the city of Syracuse. Fourth meeting. On February 19, 1956, at 2250, a mark suddenly appeared on the radar screens of the Paris airport, Orly. It could correspond to the reflected signal for any known type of aircraft, then, tracked by radars and judging by the mark, a giant UFO within the next four hours, as if demonstrating its capabilities, maneuvered in the sky, developing fantastic speeds and making incredible steep turns. So, being at some point in time over the city of Gomez-le-Châtel, the object moved to 30 kilometers to the side in 30 seconds. To do it, the aircraft had to develop a speed of 3,600 kilometers per hour, at that time, over the military base Les Moreaux, about 40 kilometers from Orly, at an altitude of 1,400 meters, a DC-3 Dakota transport aircraft flew by. The dispatcher informed the Dakota commander that an unidentified object was in the air, 250 meters below his plane. The Dakota radio operator saw a UFO through the cabin window and reported that the object is huge and glows red. Later, the commander of the Desava plane sent a report to the French Ministry of Aviation as follows. 
We had been watching UFOs for 30 seconds, but could not accurately determine either its shape or dimensions. During the flight, these parameters are difficult to evaluate. However, we are all sure in one thing. It was not a civilian aircraft. It did not have navigational lights, which according to international laws should be on any such aircraft. Then Orly warned me that the UFO is approaching to our left, and I turned the plane towards it. But in a few seconds, Orly reported that the facility turned around and headed north toward Le Bourget Airport. And in 10 minutes, the dispatcher reported that the UFO was already several kilometers above us. But we could not see it anymore. Fifth meeting. In the morning of September 4th, 1957, the link in the first formation of the four F-84 jet fighters of the Portuguese Air Force, under the command of Captain Lemos Ferreira, flew from the airbase of Ota for a training flight. That day, the weather was cloudy, there was a full moon, and the visibility was over 70 kilometers. In his report, Captain Ferreira stated in detail about the following events. When at 20.06 we reached Grenada and started to turn right to take a course on Portalegre, I saw an unusual source of light above the horizon to my left. I decided to inform other pilots about it, and we began discussing what we saw on the radar. But we could not understand what the observed object was. It looked like an unusually large and very bright sparkling star. In the center, there was a nucleus, the color of which was changing all the time, from green to blue, while taking a reddish, sometimes yellowish hue. Suddenly, the object began to grow rapidly and became six times larger than it was a few seconds ago. Then, after a few seconds, it began to decrease as quickly and soon turned into a dull yellowish star, barely visible over the mountain. Such extensions and compression were repeated several times, and after each change of magnitude, the object remained in its new form for a few seconds. All the while, the position of the UFO relative to our course remained unchanged, approximately at an angle of 40 degrees on the port side, so we could not determine what caused the changes in the size of the object, staying at the same distance from us. The mentioned transformations were repeating within eight minutes. After that, it began descending to the horizon line and simultaneously moved, eventually taking on a new position relative to our course at an angle of 90 degrees on the port side. At 20.38, I decided to land, gave the command to make a left turn and take a course on Karouche. Remaining at the same height of 7,500 meters, we turned almost 50 degrees, but the UFO was again on the left at an angle of 90 degrees, however much lower than us, but it became much closer. All this could happen only if it also made the appropriate maneuver. Now, the UFO was a bright red and shaped like a curved bean pod. A few minutes later, we saw a small circle of yellow lights near the pod soon. Three more such lights appeared next to him. They moved quickly. Their mutual position was changing all the time. We still could not determine the distance to these objects, although they realized that they were close enough and located below us. But it was obvious that the big object was 10 to 15 times bigger than the yellow circles were and that it somehow managed them. As we approached Karouche, the UFO suddenly fell down and then rushed headlong upwards towards us. In the view of the unexpected danger of collision, each pilot independently performed the evasion maneuver. The aircraft lost its control for a while. 
After a few seconds, they made the aircraft balanced, and when they looked around, they discovered that the UFO had disappeared. Hmm, how surprising. Later, the flight proceeded normally. We landed safely at our base. We had been watching the UFOs for 40-odd minutes, but did not understand what it was. Nevertheless, we are all sure that it was not a balloon, an airplane, a planet Venus, or some other object from among those that appear in absurd attempts to explain the UFO phenomenon with the help of ordinary concepts. The Sixth Meeting On November 15, 1960, the crew of the reconnaissance aircraft RB-57 of the U.S. Air Force, departing from the airbase in East Sol, Australia, noticed a UFO in the air, 50 kilometers from the Tasmania island. On this occasion, the commander of the aircraft sent the leadership of the Intelligence Service of the Australian Air Force. The following report. At about 10.40 local time, when we were 25 kilometers from Launston, my navigator detected an aircraft approaching us from the port side. Our altitude was 12,000 meters, speed of 600 kilometers per hour, course 340. Also, I saw an object approaching at a very high speed, and the navigator showed that it was not an airplane and that it looked more like a balloon. It reached an altitude of about 10,000 meters, heading 140. Based on my experience, I determined that the speed of the object exceeded 1,400 kilometers per hour. I was watching this UFO for about six seconds until it disappeared beneath my left wing. Since the UFO looked very unusual, I immediately laid the left turn to continue watching it, but it had already disappeared. The diameter of the UFO was about 25 meters. Outwardly, it looked like a semi-transparent ball of indeterminate color. It had no protruding parts. Its outlines seemed blurry. Seventh meeting. On April 30th, 1962, the test pilot of NASA, Joseph Walker, blew up an experimental X-15 aircraft again, which was tested at the U.S. Air Force Edward in California. This supersonic aircraft with a liquid rocket engine had fantastic flight characteristics for those times. When the X-15 reached a height of 60,000 meters and a speed of 5,000 kilometers per hour, the pilot reported on the radio to the ground, two light silvery disc-like UFOs had just passed over him, easily overtaking him. On May 11, 1962, in Seattle, Washington, at the Second National Conference on the Peaceful Uses of Space Research, Walker reported that among the tasks assigned to him by his superiors was also the search and recognition of UFOs. Okay, everybody, here we have the eighth meeting. On February 17, 1954, the leaders of all U.S. civilian airlines were invited to a conference in Los Angeles where intelligence officers from the Military Transport Aviation Administration introduced the document codenamed JANEP 146. The document was the instruction of the Joint Information Service of the Army, Navy, and Air Force, which forbade all crew members of civil aircraft to tell about their UFO sightings, not only to representatives of the mass media, but also to their relatives and friends. For all pilots who violated the instruction and told someone about their secret UFO encounters, a very severe punishment was established, imprisonment for up to 10 years, or a fine of up to $10,000.
All right, this one was a little bit longer than usual, so I'm going to keep this part short and sweet. Of course, I believe that pilots could see UFOs or UAPs, but I do find it interesting, and I will really just leave it at this. If the military can spy on other countries with great detail, how is it that we can't get any specifics, any clarity and proof on what these people are seeing? You know, it sort of reminds me of those crime shows out there. Whenever they show something that they caught on video, maybe something the police are trying to review, the video that the detectives are looking at is really never all that clear. Because of the static, because of how blurry it is, I mean, we hear it over and over again, getting an exact identification never really seems to be all that possible. We get the, I saw it with my own eyes, But unfortunately, I have nothing to show for it. Nothing concrete, anyway. Sort of a trend out there, isn't it? But how does it make you feel? Are you a diehard and you'll believe it anyway? Or do you think it's all fluff, it's just a story? Share your thoughts. And thank you for listening. And I will talk to you all soon.